Good morning. If somebody comes for keys in the front row, you know I've done my job. I'm not sure. It, it's got to be a band members because there's like a there's a bass plug thing. So, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know me, I'm Preston Ford. I'm one of the elders here. Um, obviously, Jimmy is a teaching pastor, and he's with a group that's en route to Uganda. And uh, so, as Jacob said. Uh, we want to be prayerful for them, um, and, and we'll I'll pray specifically for them as we as we wrap up today. Um, but I want to I want to start with this, and if you want to go ahead and get a head start, we're actually going to be looking in First Peter four, verse seven through eleven, and it'll take us just a bit to get there. Um, but I want to start with. Talking about how things either function properly or, or don't. Um, so how many of you have, have been part of a family? Maybe you're part of a family or you at least know a family that they just seem, everything about them seems to function properly. Like I use first service, I use the Griffiths as an example. You know, you go, you go over to their house and, you know, this would have been when they had more kids in the household, but you're done eating and it's like boom everybody knows their job you got kids sweeping under the table kids wiping off the table another kid's already made the meal like you know you look at their you look at their refrigerator and they've got their organizational chart lined out um you can tell when a family functions properly um now they were over there shaking their head the whole time like you don't know you have no clue. That's not how it is. But um, how many of you have maybe been part of a family that doesn't function properly? What we call dysfunctional. <laughs> we got hands going, yup, that's me. Um, you can tell, right? You can tell when things just aren't working, when people aren't playing their role in the family. When, you know, when maybe you've got, I mean, it could be a list of reasons. You've got... Um, a dictator leader or you you've got mom and dad who aren't on the same page and therefore or you got rebellious kids that aren't willing to step up and do their part in the family uh, you can tell when it's dysfunctional same thing for sports teams I'd be remiss at Super Bowl Sunday right so I got to give the the sports reference and I love sports some of you're like please move on to the next one um, but but you can tell when a good team is functioning properly and it's usually not it's not a talent-based thing right so I grew up playing baseball all through high school um, I had a role right I was the leadoff hitter my job was to get on base my job whether that meant putting down a bunt or leaning into a pitch like the entire time I played baseball how many home runs did I have thanks Walt thanks for the confidence <laughs> fortunately Walt's right I had zero. But you know what? That wasn't my job. That wasn't my role. My role was to get on base. And so when you see a good sports team, I'll take a good sports team that plays for the man beside of them and, and, and maybe has less talent any day than, than a bunch of egos and somebody that wants to make it about them. And we see that, and I'm almost done with sports, I promise. We see that right now in the NBA. You see the... The Los Angeles Lakers, right? They came into this season. They had a cut like three superstars, and they are just not good, right? You got a bunch of superstars, but nobody knows the role. Nobody knows how to play the role. Uh, we see that, and I think this one is this one hits home for everybody. We see that in our bodies, right? Would you like your body to function properly? A resounding amen. Right, so I have the ability now to speak to this issue because I turned 40 in October. So prior to October, I feel like I didn't really have the, you know, the ability because everybody's like, ah, you don't even know. And now I've still got 50 and 60-year-olds saying, no, seriously, you don't know. <laughs> um, we are reminded often that this is not, our bodies are temporal, right? Um, but I saw that. You asked me, Spring of last year, like, man, how do you feel? Like, you're almost 40, six months away. 
And I would have told you, I was like, man, I feel like I'm probably in some of the better shape of my life. Like, I feel good. I'm working out. Everything's good. I feel great. And then I kept working out. And then my shoulder started hurting. And then my knee started hurting. And then, I guess because this shoulder hurt, this elbow started hurting. <laughs> and it's like this downward spiral. And I'm reminded that I really, really like it when my body functions properly. Well, we've been in a sermon series called More Than a Building for the last four weeks. It's rooted in Acts chapter 2, 40 through 47. Um, and just a quick recap, maybe some of you have, have not been here. Uh, and so I'm just going to recap what we've been talking about, what Jimmy's been preaching on. Week one, the main idea was that the church is not a building, but it's a people saved by Jesus. Right, so we are a people... When we place our faith in Christ, we're a people saved by Jesus. That's what makes a church, not these walls. Week two, we talked about the church is not a physical building. Once again, it's not these walls, but it's a spiritual house of prayer. And so as we're saved, as we're, as we're adopted into the family of God, now we're, we belong to one another, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but we're people saved by Jesus. We're not, it's not the building that we're talking about. But we have a responsibility and a privilege that we actually can communicate with the creator of the universe. We're a house of prayer. Week three, the church is not built with brick and mortar, but with the truth of the apostles' teaching. So what we looked at is that we're going to stake all of our claims in whatever is in this truth. Right? This is our solid foundation that God has written, that God has given to us. And we're putting all of our, everything that we're trusting is going to be based on truth. Week four, the church is not a physical building, but a spiritual family made up of people sharing a common life in Christ. That was last week, right? So it's not just about a building, once again, but we're actually a family. We belong to one another. I got a bunch of crazy cousins now. And our, we live a shared life. That's common in Jesus. So we can have nothing else in common. I've said this over and over. Jacob Wilk and I have nothing else in common but Jesus. But he's my brother. And we have a shared life. So I'm going to piggyback off of last week's message. And we're going to look at another passage dealing with a few exhortations to the church. And that's what brings us, that's what will bring us to 1 Peter. And so... In Acts 2, as he's been preaching, you know, the Holy Spirit came, the first church was established, God was saving people, the church was exploding, and now we're going to get to 1 Peter, and it was exploding so much that now there have been some people that are dispersed abroad. And, and a lot of this dispersion has happened because not everybody's excited about this Christian movement. What we're going to see is that, that this is going to deal with Christian ethics. So based on what we believe, based on what we're rooting our hope and our faith in, in Jesus, based on what we call true, how do we live? What do we do? What do we do with that? A guy by the name of Stephen West says, A person's highest ethical duty is to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Their second highest ethical duty is to love their neighbor as themselves. For a Christian, fulfilling these moral obligations takes place in obedience to the law of Christ and submission to the teaching of God's word. The ultimate goal is to glorify God in everything that is said, done, thought, and felt. Other broad ethical goals include being a blessing to others and growing as a virtuous person. And so before we read... 1 Peter 4, I just want to kind of set the context of, of what's going on. Peter is the author of, of 1 Peter. Peter was one of the 12 apostles. You've probably heard Peter's name. Peter has a reputation of being kind of a loose cannon, right? We've got some stories about Peter in the Bible that it's like, man, I wish, I think if he had to do that over, he probably wouldn't have cut the guy's ear off, you know, or he probably wouldn't have, like, tried to call Jesus out, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, 
But Peter ended up being used mightily by God. Along with Paul, Peter came to be one of the main primary leaders of the early church. Paul was mainly assigned to reach Gentiles while Peter ministered mainly to to Jews. So Peter wrote this letter from Rome towards the end of his life to a diverse group of both Jews and Gentiles. They were living in an area called Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And so what was going on is the emperor of that time, and some of you that studied your Bibles, the emperor at that time was a man by the name of Nero. Not a nice dude. Nero, Nero did not like what was going on. So he was becoming increasingly suspicious of Christians. And then soon that suspicion would actually turn into outright hostility and persecution. So Peter himself would end up going on to be martyred. But as he's writing to these people, he was writing to them as they were feeling the heat starting to turn up. As he actually says in in 1 Peter, he talks about how they would endure suffering because of, quote, fiery ordeal. So the purpose of the letter was to prepare these people to live in a culture at odds with their faith. Does that sound relevant today? Preparing the people of God to live in a culture at odds with their faith. I want to tell you, this is not, and and this will make more sense toward the end, this is not a sales pitch. I'm not trying to guilt people into serving. We're going to talk about loving each other and serving each other. Um, This isn't a sales pitch to try to get you to do something. However, this is an exhortation to live according to the Word of God, loving the people of God, and stewarding the gifts of God. Now, what you do with it, That's up to you. But that's the exhortation. So with that said, let's read 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Starting in verse 7, it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen. So the main idea is this. Based on that passage of scripture, with the end in mind, the church is to love and serve one another to the glory of God. So if we can all commit to do that, we'll go home and eat early lunch. Right? That's all you need. Love and serve one another. Do it for the glory of God. But let's Let's look at what this passage shows us. We're going to talk about three exhortations that we see actually in this passage. And so if we look at verse 7 again, it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So Peter starts to these dispersed people saying, But the end of all things is at hand. The first exhortation is that the church, them and us, is to live in light of Jesus returning. He wants them to see that this is not just about the here and the now. In their case, they were starting to face persecution and suffering Some of them, I'm sure, were starting to ask, is this worth it? I don't know if we signed up for this. And he's saying, the end of all things is at hand. So if we're to live in light of Jesus returning, how do we actually do that? 
I think first we understand like he's exhorting them. We understand that we're pilgrims. He says in in his opening to this letter, depending on your version, in New King James Version, he calls them pilgrims. ESV calls them elect exiles. Basically, you are not of this world. Once you have placed your faith into Jesus Christ, you've turned from your sins, God's adopted you into a new family, your home is not here. You are merely passing through. So that applies to us today, and I'll say this for me, it is so easy for our gaze to be horizontal and for our cares to be what's in front of us. Right? I can look at my past week and I feel like a lot of my focus and attention has been horizontal because there's this, there's this struggle, right? My eyes need to be fixed up. My gaze needs to be in heaven because this isn't my home. Yet we are here for a purpose. And we're called to make a difference. So in addition to understanding that this isn't our home, right? As Christians, and a lot of this, this is geared, this letter's written to Christians. This message would be, Exhortation to Christians, those who have surrendered their life and and, and God has saved through the, the work of Jesus. We also take sin seriously. That's how we start living in light of Jesus returning. We take sin seriously. Jesus said this in Luke 21. He says, but take heed... To yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape. All these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So even Jesus is telling them, his disciples in that that passage, be ready. How many of you have doomsday prepper friends? That means you are the doomsday prepper people, probably. I've got a a buddy, and he's he's a good dude, but I talked to him a couple weeks ago. I don't think he's going to watch this, but. He was like, man, you probably need to get all your money out of the banks. Anytime you go to the store, you need to get more canned goods. Like, it's getting ready to go down. And i like, I don't know, maybe he knows something I don't know. And if he does, then I'll go to his house. But that's not, that's not the message that Peter has for these people. It's not just hunker down and wait till Jesus comes. John MacArthur says this. He says, the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ should not turn the Christian into a zealous fanatic who does nothing but wait for it to occur. Instead, it should lead the believer into a watchful pursuit of holiness. Moreover, a watchful attitude creates a pilgrim mentality. It reminds the Christian that he is a citizen of heaven only sojourning on earth. So once again, living in light of Jesus returning, this isn't our home. We're going to take sin seriously. We're going to take the pursuit of holiness seriously. That's what Peter's telling these folks. But he's also saying, live with a sense of urgency. Therefore, be serious and watchful. Live with a sense of urgency. We had, my sister and I had the opportunity to stay home maybe a little bit more than most kids as, as younger teens. And, that, you know, at the time, my mom was raising us and 
anyways, y'all don't know me, but God redeemed my mom and dad's marriage, and that's, a, that's I'll tell you about it if you come up, talk to me about it. This is my mom right here. Um, but, <laughs> so, at the time, she was a single mom. She was doing what she could. She was working, and so we would be home, um, and it was very common that she would leave us, like, a list of stuff that, and this would be, like, summertime. Say she's gone to work, we're at home for the summer, and she'd leave, leave us a list when she left for work um, of stuff to do. And it, it usually worked out that we would get real serious about doing that stuff about 15 minutes before she got home. Right? So, so all day long, our sense of urgency was zero. But you get us about 15 minutes out from her arriving... Man, we're cleaning. Th- like I did, we can do more in 15 minutes than we did the whole previous week. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you have a sense of urgency. One commentary described that as living in confidence and anticipation of the consummation of God's work in Christ. See, we're we're called to live. In confidence that Jesus is coming back because he's already accomplished everything else. You ever, I've got, you know, I'm insurance agent. People come in my office and, you know, when you're dealing with the public, you're going to have all kinds of conversations, right? That's just, that's, that's how it works. So there will be, there will be people that will want to talk about end times you got some of those friends or at least acquaintances and usually here's what it looks like end times is connected to how bad it is right now in current events which is usually connected to a political stance of some sort right and you can just trace it back and trace it back but and usually they always talk about the the revelation I'm, I'm basing this on revelations. I'm like, well, there's only one revelation. So that's, that's probably a good place to start. But those, those end times guys, I don't disagree with them. I think they want you to, right? At the end of the day, we are in end times. And here's how I know this. I know this because we've been in the last days Ever since Jesus said it is finished. When he ascended to the Father, to the right hand of the Father, we are in the end times. So I'm not going to disagree with anybody. He's already, he's already done everything that is fulfilled it up to this point. He was birthed, right? He lived a sinless life. He died a gruesome death. He rose from the grave. He appeared before all kinds of them, and then he ascended. So he's done everything that it takes to get us to that end times. But are we living like it could be tomorrow? I'm not a doomsday prepper. I already told you that. I don't have my canned goods. I don't, you know. But am I living my life face to face with God as if? It could be tomorrow that he comes back with a sense of urgency. See, Peter offered this this exhortation. He offered it out of experience. Like he had some practical experience with this. Matthew 26. You guys probably remember this passage. Then he, he being Jesus, came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And said to who? Peter. Said to Peter. What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. But the flesh is weak. So Peter's now writing to these dispersed Christians that are facing persecution and trial. He's writing out of experience saying, listen, if I can tell you anything, be ready. Be ready, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Because he understood the impact if you weren't. 
See, ultimately, heeding that instruction to live in light of Jesus returning, that moves us to prayer. And a lot of times we talk about prayer in the church, and we almost talk about it like, like we, you know, like you got to just muster up that, man, you just got you got to pray more. Once again, I'm doing, like there's there's times that I feel like I feel pretty dry prayer wise, and I hate to admit that. But instead of trying to muster up, I need to pray more. When we live in light of Jesus returning with a sense of urgency about that, that will move us to prayer. But when we keep our gaze horizontal on comfort and earthly pursuits, that's what we get wrapped up in. It's easy to, to fill our schedules, to fill our lives with comfort. And earthly pursuits. And, and even though, you know, I think in the past two years, we, the church in America has gotten shaken some, right? There's a sifting going on. You know, there's a lot of people who are, you know, they've just, they've gone and done their own thing. They're like, no, that, it's, you know, it's not for me anymore. Those radical Christians still gathering. But we still can't necessarily connect to the persecution and suffering these folks were experiencing. We live comfortable lives. Right? I've never I've never walked in somewhere and had somebody question whether I'm a Christian or not and base that on whether they're going to serve me food. Right? I've never gone in any public space and and had them publicly ridicule and mock me because of my faith. In Jesus, at least not locally here. And that's what they were up against. But we live comfortable lives. So if we heed this instruction, then I think that's going to move us to prayer. The second exhortation we see, verse 8 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So the second exhortation is that the church is to display love and hospitality toward one another. And he's writing this based on a proverb, Proverbs 10, 12, that says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So he wants them to know above everything else, regardless of what you do, you better have a strong love for one another. You're going to need each other as this thing goes south. So the church is to work at loving one another. Fervent actually means to stretch or to strain. And so... The church is to work at loving one another because, once again, if we're being honest, love takes work. Some people are just easier to love than others. And this idea... (laughs) Don't pat your husband's thigh right now. (laughs) This idea that it's just going to come easy is is silly and so we if we believe that then then when it actually gets hard and we have to choose to love one another and work at it and strive and strain toward it then what you see a lot of times you see people just throwing in the towel i don't need that relationship i'll go find it i'll go find an easier relationship we see that this takes more work as stress rises I think all of us can agree on that. In their case, he was exhorting them to love one another because as the, as the persecution increased, tensions increased, when we get squeezed and all those nasty little impurities come out of us, we start seeing what the real people are. It's harder to love one another. We see that in our own lives, right? 
My family, like you give us a, you give us a week where there's the, the calendar's not too full and we don't have any hard life decisions to make and you know, we're just kind of coasting. It's going to be pretty easy to, to get along and love it. I mean, we don't have anything hard to talk about. You put us in a week that just feels like a crunch or you give us a trial. Now, now we get to choose. We get to work at loving one another. Loving one another leads to forgiving sin. So, so here's what I mean by that. He wants them to create this love for one another. That when things arise, because they will, as persecution rises, as stresses rise, when they're squeezed, people are going to say things they don't mean. People are going to do things they shouldn't do. And when you, when you have a foundation of love for one another already built, you're going to be much more apt to forgive that quickly. You're going to forgive those minor issues and avoid the major rifts. And we see that within church. We see what was a we see a lot of times what ends up being a minor issue. Color of the church carpet turns into two churches. Was there really a foundation of love beforehand? He calls us to love one another. The church is to open our lives and our homes to one another. So we got to work at loving one another, and then we're, we're called to open our lives and our homes to one another. See, hospitality, he says, be hospitable to one another. Hospitality was foundational to the Christian movement. The 12 disciples, remember when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, the, he, he told them to find hospitable places to stay. Can you imagine being tasked with that? Just try that on Motown Madness weekend. We don't have host homes, but y'all go find somewhere, find some nice people to stay, to stay with. The place of hospitality, they had to find a place of hospitality for the Last Supper. They were reliant on somebody else opening their home. Even the, church, even the early church's practice of celebrating the Last Supper together it was rooted in Jesus eating regularly with his disciples. See, I think, here's an example of what this can look like within the church. There's a pastor posting on Twitter. It says, Bill's family joined our church. No one invited them to dinner. What did they do? They began inviting people over for meals. Today, most of our church has at least been invited into their home. They changed our church. Lord, help us be what we wish others would be for us. The church is to open our lives and our homes to one another. And see, in this case, one another may not be somebody you know. As the church grows, we talk about growing larger and smaller. I don't know everybody at True Life. Probably never will. That's okay. But can I, can I be hospitable if the Lord leads me to do that? We've got a family in our church. They, they have a hospitality house in Morristown. They feel like God's given them the resources and the gifts to open their home to people that are staying temporarily in Morristown or passing through. And I guarantee you, if you sat down with them and asked them, hey, tell me some of how God used that, there would be story after story after story how God gets the glory because they've opened their home and their lives to people. See, but remember, he says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Hmm. The practice of hospitality is supposed to be done without grumbling. You ever been to somebody's house, felt awkward or unwelcome? Like they're just not good at it. They're just, they're just like, man, I'm not sure 
why we're even here because you don't want guests. Like that that's weird, especially when they're Christians. Some people are specifically gifted in this area, right? So we're going to talk just real briefly about some spiritual gifts. Some people are just awesome at this. They're like, man, this is how God's using them. That family in Morristown is an example. My mom and dad. My mom and dad are hospitable folks. And to watch, like, people just come in and let their guard down and share a meal and enjoy, and, and like, you can tell, like, it's just a ministry to people. They're so good at it that Manny and I just listed our house and moved in with them. So we'll see how hospitable they are in like three months. But even those folks that are gifted that way, that doesn't give the rest of us an out. Like God calls all of us to be hospitable and open our homes and lives. But that's not, that's not the American way, right? We have fences for a reason. We have locks for a reason. What if that's how we started to relate to one another in the church? That's what he's encouraging these folks to do. Because he knows that the fire's going to get hot. The trials will become real. Y'all are going to need each other. Colossians 3.14 says... But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Peter actually says himself again, this isn't the first time he had said this. He said back in the chapter 1, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, here he is again, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And then Jesus tells his disciples in a common passage John 13 34 and 35 he says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you that you also have love for one another and what does that result in listen by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so as we're living this life in expectancy of Jesus coming back, striving to love one another well and be hospitable, what we're doing is we're showing the world there's something different. Jesus himself said, by this, by the way you love one another, they're going to know you're my disciples. And then the third exhortation is, the church is equipped and empowered to serve one another. And so we see in verse 10. Verse 10 says. As each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks. Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers. Let him do it. As with the ability which God supplies. And so. Peter doesn't do a deep dive into spiritual gifts here. He, most of that is actually left up to Paul. Paul writes extensively about that in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But Peter just touches on the fact that you've got to use your gifts. Whatever you've got, use it for the glory of God. I mentioned Romans 12. Paul says in Romans 12, 4 through 8, and gives a little bit more detail. It says, for as we have many members in one body... There's the body reference again, right? Where the church of God is referred to as a body, as a family. Many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Working definition of spiritual gifts is this. Ministries or abilities 
that the Holy Spirit gives to Christians for the edification of the church. For the building up of the church. So when we place our faith in, in Christ, when Christ, when God saves us through the finished work of Jesus, we see that now we have a gift. As each one has received a gift. In this case, he divides these gifts just into two general categories. Speaking and serving. But what we see is that God is the one who supplies the gift. Right? We don't muster that up. And not only does he supply the gift, he supplies the power to use it. It's, a, it's evidence of God's grace. Right? So grace is what? Grace is receiving something we don't deserve. So God graces us with this gift, first of salvation, and now with a gift to minister to the new family that we have. And it's something we don't d- deserve, but it, it's evidence of God's grace in our lives. So these gifts are also to be stewarded and not hoarded. Because think about it. God's the giver of the gift. If God's the giver of the gift, who's the gift belong to? Belongs to Him. So it's not ours. Stewardship is taking care of something that is not yours. We are stewards of whatever whatever way God has gifted us. See, God channels His grace through us to others by use of the gift. Ultimately, your gift, once again, I'm talking to Christians, your gift, whatever that is, or gifts, plural, is not meant for you. Right? It's not about you. Whatever God has gifted you in is for the purpose of others. And sometimes we, we get that backwards. We want to make it about us, right? That's just, that's human nature. That's Adam in us. We just want it to all be about us. But God uses your gift for others. We see some of that evidence, even in this local body. I'll use John Harrell. He's on the Uganda trip, but... When you see somebody's gift being worked out, it's so evident. So God, John has, John's, God's gifted John in many ways, but he has the gift of administration. Man, this dude, he was born and handed a spreadsheet to the doctor. <laughs> like, that's just who John Harrell is. But then what's he doing with it? He's serving the body. John Harrell can get you, if you need things in order, he can get you straight with some color-coded Excel spreadsheets. There's all kinds of people across this church that have gifts and talents that are being used in many ways that we don't even see. They're, They're like the unsung heroes, right? You guys see whoever's speaking up here. I've got, maybe some of you would disagree with that. I'm not going to put it to a poll. They're speaking and serving gifts. Right now I'm hopefully using some of the, the, the speaking side of it. But there's people serving in ways that we don't even think about, right? Like people are at this, they're actually here cleaning and you know, we got people rocking babies. Like, there's a reason that there's not a ton of kids, you know, crying or anything right now. And it doesn't happen on accident. Like, there's people that have said, hey, I think God wants to use me in this way for His glory to minister to these kids. I think about Heather Roach. For those of you who know Will and Heather, Heather Roach rocked all three of my babies like every Sunday, for years. 
still does. Oh. (laughs) I was like, I don't know, they're getting a little old. That's kind of weird. Yeah, she's still doing that, serving God, right? God's God's gifted her, and she's saying, I want to do this. This is how I can serve the body. Ultimately, the the gifts are intended to build up the body. That's what they're for. So it's, it's even less about what gift you have, more about what you're doing with it. Right? I think sometimes we, we maybe fall victim to, to jealousy, gift jealousy, if you will. Like I was kind of jealous of the people that got to just rock babies today. I was like, man. I don't know. I'm nervous. <laughs> I'd rather just rock some babies. I don't like to rock babies, but I sounded pretty good uh, 24 hours ago. Our gifts are a further expression of love toward one another. Right? So Peter's exhorted them keep the end in mind, love one another, be hospitable to one another. Serve one another with your gifts. Those aren't divided issues. If you love one another, you will serve one another. By serving one another, you are loving one another. Does that make sense? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, you can't go to a wedding without hearing 1 Corinthians, right? The love chapter. But he writes that, in context of spiritual gifts. It's sandwiched between chapter 12 and 14. And what he's saying is, above all else, this is the most important thing, that you do this out of love. Whatever you're doing, whatever gift you have, you better do it out of love. And as you have that love for one another, you will then appropriately minister your gift. I've got to quit with the, um, there's a phrase that I hate, and I think it ties into this gift. How often do you say, let me know if you need anything? And and if somebody says that to me, I'm not going to hate it, but... I hate when I say it to people. Let me know if you need anything. When's the last time somebody took you up on that? I'm going to take somebody up on it. Next person to ask me. I'm just going to ring them up like 7 o'clock that night. Hey, I am so thankful that you offered. And I'm hungry. Because <laughs> people don't really mean it. I mean, I think they, we want to be good intention. But what if we actually use the gift? What if instead of saying, hey, let me know if you need anything, we ask God, hey, God, um, how can I serve them? How can I practically show love to one another? How have you gifted me to actually make an impact right now in their lives? See, I think it's important that we know that we can help each other discover and Discover and steward our gifts. We do a, um, a spiritual gifts class, and it's helpful. It's a tool, but it's not that easy. You can't just do. You can't take like a million question assessment because that's what they feel like, and then just have it spit out an answer to you, and then be like, "Oh, all right. Well, here's what I'm going to do for the kingdom of God." That can be a tool that can be part of the process. But some of it is us seeing it in each other. It's us calling those giftings out in each other. It's us being willing to say, man, I see this in you. And I think, I think here's what God's doing in you. And I just want to encourage you that maybe you can plug in here. Or maybe have you thought about using this gift There's an example, Dane Ortland. some of you may know Dane Ortland. So he, he had posted tips for encouraging another image bearer. 
Look them in the eye. Be specific. Be sincere. Be God-centered. Because what you're doing is you're identifying an evidence of grace or what you see God doing in them. And anybody that's, that's ever done that with somebody and, and, and tried to utilize a gift of exhortation or, or, or seeing something in somebody and, and really trying to encourage them toward what God's doing, you'll understand what these last two are. Don't let them deflect it in mock humility. How easy is that, right? Because sometimes people don't want to receive, ah, man, now I'm going to be responsible. If, if somebody says they see this in me and, and people keep affirming this, now i gotta, you know, now I got to be responsible for it and i got to steward it, got to take care of it. And then ultimately don't end with a joke or a laugh. But we have an opportunity, guys, to help, pe- help each other discover and steward our gifts. And so those three exhortations really culminate with the glory of God. The ultimate purpose of our love, hospitality, and service is the glory of God. Scripture says that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him or to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's how he finishes this passage to these folks that are dispersed. That in all things, how you love one another, how you fix your your focus on the return of Christ, how you show hospitality, how you serve one another with your gifts, all of that is for the glory of God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And I'll end with this. A commentary says, Serving fellow Christians does glorify God because people will praise Him for His grace that comes to them through Jesus and through His followers. So we want to bring glory to God as followers of Christ, as this not a building but a family, then we do that by loving and serving one another. So as I conclude, there can be a lot of different ways, you know, you take this, right? I already told you in the the beginning, this is not a sales pitch. We've seen through this that the church is exhorted to live with the end in mind, to above all else have love and for one another and practice hospitality toward one another, and as an expression of love for one another to serve one another with our God-given gifts. So I just, I just simply want to ask you, how do you need to respond to that? Maybe, maybe it's gaining a sense of urgency. We talked about living with a sense of urgency. Maybe it's a gaining a sense of urgency about how you're living with a pursuit of holiness and a hatred of sin. Maybe it's just loving somebody that's hard, hard to love. Maybe, maybe you hear this text and God's dealing with you you're like, man, I need to open my home and my life. I need to do more one-anothering. Maybe you need to discover your gifts. If you're a Christian, you know, maybe this is, you might say, well, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I, I'm just proud to be here. And we would love to help you, you know, identify those. See where you can plug in and serve the body. I'm not just going to hand you an assessment. I promise you that. But maybe you need to put your gifts to use. That would be one practical application. 
There's some service opportunity forms under your seats. We're not going to have greeters come by, but if you'll reach under and grab those, I do want to highlight a couple things. And so the staff has advised me of a few things. You know, the sta- our staff feels the brunt of um, deficiencies probably before any of us do. Uh, so, so they kind of are in, on the on the front lines, and they they can tell when we when we are lacking manpower in different areas. And a couple things they pointed out was just some practical ministry areas, you know, that have needs. Is sound media and production. You know, maybe maybe that's a practical way that you can serve the local body on a, on a Sunday. Children's ministry. That need never goes away, right? We need more Heather roaches. If that's, if, if that's some way that God's wired you, and we know that's not for everyone. Once again, we don't want you practicing. We don't want you doing that begrudgingly. Like, I don't want some angry person back there with the kids. Probably not good. Here's a very practical way that somebody could serve. When we do baptisms and we celebrate new life in Christ and, and, and get to, to witness that, there's, there's people behind the scenes that are kind of cleaning up the water that's dripping everywhere and, and just doing some of the logistics. We need a few people that would be willing, whenever we have baptisms, to be part of that baptism team. And then for any Barney Fives out there, because we got some, we need some people that are part of the security team, specifically on Wednesday nights. So, you know, we've never set out as a church to be a you know, church with a bunch of ministries. We've said that over and over. We're going to gather, and then we're going to be in each other's lives through small groups. But Wednesday nights, for those of you that haven't been around on Wednesday nights, there's a lot of people here. You know, and it just so ha- like it just happens because there's things for the family, and that's when youth meets. And you know, thankfully God's doing a great work in youth, and it's exploding. But there's a lot of people, so there's a need for um, security then, just like there is on on Sundays. But those are just some examples. If you fill anything on this form out, whether it's you just want to tell us, hey, I have a prayer request, I have a question. I want to tell you to be quiet, whatever. I want to sign up. You're not signing up for any of those ministries. You're just, you would check the box and somebody would follow up with you to give you more information. And you may hear the information and be like, yeah, I need an eraser. That's not for me. That's fine. Uh, But if you fill these forms out, if you'll look back at the back doors, there's two boxes. That's where those forms go. Okay, so that's the last time I'm going to tell you where they are. Because a lot of people ask. I want to end in prayer. Like I said, I want to pray for our folks in Uganda. God, we once again thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your work. What you've done on our behalf that our sin... Those of us who have placed our faith in you, Jesus, our sin has been replaced with your righteousness, God. Doesn't even make doesn't even make sense, Lord, that you would do that for us, God. But I pray that that we would live in light of you returning. That we would have a sense of urgency about what we're doing here, God, and that you would give us just a, a unfailing love for one another, to love one another and serve one another well, God, and that, uh, that as you say in, in John 13, that, that people would see that we're your disciples by the way we love one another. God, I pray for our team that's en route to you, God. God, I just ask that you would open doors. Uh, we obviously pray for their safety, God, but I pray that you would give them boldness like we see the prayers in, in Acts, God, that you would give them boldness to speak, that you would give them um, even just wisdom to know um, what relationships to, to establish, God, that you would introduce them to more peoples of peace, God, and that, that you would 
just orchestrate that trip for your glory. Um, we do pray that you'd be with the families that are on, on this side of it, that you would care for them and tend to them. Uh, we look forward to how you want to use us, uh, both here in our community and across the globe, and we are thankful that you um, allow us to, to be part of your mission, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.